Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 415. Today's episode is a very fascinating one. So it is on the gut-brain connection, and it is truly fascinating. So if you have hung out with me for a while or listened to some of my previous podcast episodes, uh, you know that we talk a lot about gut health and how over 70% of our immune system is actually located in our gut. And so what we eat food-wise not just affects our digestion and overall health, but it also affects our immune system. But the fascinating thing is it goes beyond just our immune system and our gut health directly impacts so much more than just our immune system because it impacts the way that um, our brain communicates to all of the other systems within our body um, and from the, the brain to the gut, obviously, and that there's this whole connectivity pathway, and it's really, really fascinating. And I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest on the podcast. So today's guest is Dr. Emran Mayer. He is a gut health expert. Uh, MD, world-renowned and award-winning gastroenterologist and neuroscientist. And he has accumulated 35 years of research on the clinical and neurobiological relationship between the digestive system and the nervous system. And so it's a fascinating look. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. And one of the things that I, I found very interesting is it really all comes back simplified down to what we eat and consume directly affects our health. And I think if more, like you can hear that, I, I think most of us probably have heard some form of that or in another, and you even know like, oh, well, I need to eat healthy. But I don't think that very many of us, and I include myself in this, especially earlier in, in my life, I don't think that we really deep down get how true of a statement that is. And so I think it, I'm very excited to have this conversation. And I also want to preface it as, as a homesteader that I think it's important that we have conversations with people who may have slightly differing views on things or viewpoints or way at coming at things um, that we don't get stuck in this uh, in an echo chamber and so i i say that um because in today's conversation one i really enjoyed this conversation with dr mayor very much respect him and the work that he is doing um but i come at things from someone who raises grass-fed grass-finished uh beef and uh, chicken and from a homesteader mindset, right? Like um, I take a lot of, I take the viewpoint on, I'm going to make the changes as much as possible within my own life and with, with my own children and do all that I can because I can't control what the outside and it, saying the outside world kind of sounds funny, but right, like I can't necessarily control um, what other people do and what, what companies do and 
you know, big corporations and stuff. And I can vote with my dollar, obviously the way I spend things and I can work to make bigger long-term change in a larger like global capacity. But what I directly do inside my own home and my own family and my own self, like that is what I can truly control and make the biggest difference in this moment in time. Um, but I'm really excited for you to hear today's episode. So without further ado, we are going to jump straight into this episode and interview with Dr. Mayer. And you can find the show notes and additional links because we talk about lots of different things at melissaknorris.com forward slash 415. So that's just the number 415 because this is episode number 415. So let's get to it. Dr. Mayer, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thanks, Melissa, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, well, I'm very excited to have you on today because I feel like we were chatting a little bit before we started hitting record that we kind of look at gut health, um, very similar to farming, actually, that, oh, we'll just use some prebiotics or some probiotics and we'll introduce them and that's going to solve all of our gut issues. And kind of like with farming, we're going to add some nitrogen and that's going to increase this, you know, be everything we need for big growth, not realizing that you have to fix the root problem. We can't just treat a symptom or just look at it as one part because obviously the body is this whole system. And what I found fascinating as I was diving into your book is how much more connection of all of the body systems actually is found in the gut. The immune system is 70 to 80% of the immune system is in the gut, but there's so much more of it than that in the way that everything in the body from the, the brain and, and even mental things, all of it is connected and we need to get that gut health not just treating a symptom of it by throwing a probiotic at it necessarily, but treating it as a whole. So I am very excited to chat with you today about that. So for a lot of our my listeners are familiar somewhat with gut health, but a lot of us are, I would say, are kind of newer. So for gut health, especially um, in regards to like leaky gut, um, and inflammation. Do you kind of just want to give a little bit of an overview of that for us, and then we can dive into some more of the nuances? Yeah. So, I mean, having been a gastroenterologist for, you know, 45 years, the last 45 years, I've really been trained <clears throat> and specialized on looking for gut diseases, not really for gut health. And when that concept first became popular, I mean, I would say, you know, in on my horizon, maybe five, 10, maximally 10 years ago, it was something that um, I wasn't really sure what that is, you know, because with my patients, they come, yeah, what they come with, inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease or ulcers or... So the main, the main difference between gut health and... Um, and it's a difficult thing in general because how do you measure gut health? You know, we can easily measure if you have inflammatory bowel disease, where it is and how severe it is and what the complications are. We can't do this with gut health. You know, even doing an endoscopy, the gut looks normal. There's nothing abnormal in, in, a, in an unhealthy gut that doesn't have a disease. 
And so for that, you have to sort of dive deeper, uh, dive deeper into the um, what's underneath the surface of the gut, you know, and as you mentioned, there is 70% of our immune system um, and most immune cells on your way to the rest of the body travel through the gut and are influenced by influences that they're exposed to in this in this passage. <clears throat> and um, there's also, you know, the biggest part of our hormonal system is in these specialized cells from serotonin to to GLP-1, all the satiety hormones. So gut health is, in my definition, is a coordinated interaction of all these different systems that are in our gut. So people have called it the gut connectome, you know, because it's not just, it's not just this tube that moves things from one part to the other and allows you to absorb nutrients. It's a combination of the most complicated systems in our body that live there within microns of apart from each other and um, and they're in close contact again just microns away from the gut microbiome from from these 40 trillion you know non-human cells that that interact with all these cells in our gut so it's all invisible the microbes are invisible the these different systems in the gut are not visible unless you take out a piece of the gut and look at it under the microscope. But this is where the action is. There's nothing that there's no visible holes. If you take a biopsy, the biopsy looks normal. Um, you mentioned also the leaky gut. You know that has really catapulted, I think, gut health to the to, to the um, attention of, of a lot of people. I mean, that's also a very complicated concept because it's not the big holes that some lay writers are sort of promoting where, you know, whole molecules get through and <clears throat> get in contact with the immune system. It's it's a, normally a very tightly regulated system, what's been allowed to go through and what's allowed to come in contact with, with certain cells, what can go into the blood and then from the blood into the brain. So... The, the gut permeability by itself is not something that's either intact or has holes in it. You know, it's it's a dynamic system and it changes with chronic stress and with diet. And so gut health is a, is, is a lot more complicated than gut disease, quite honestly. Gut diseases were pretty much figured out, you know, certainly how to diagnose it. We have treatments which are good for some things, not quite as ideal as we'd like them to be. But for gut health, um, that's very different. You know, we have to go, there's no specific medication, you know, and there's no specific supplement. So a lot of the functional medicine people have kind of replaced the medications, the pharmaceuticals with the supplements. But it's the same mindset, you know, you have to, you throw in one thing that's missing, you do a test and there's something missing. Um, I personally have come to the conclusion, and, and you mentioned this, because of this interface that the gut is sitting between the influences from the brain, which go on 24 hours a day during your sleep even, and the influences it gets from the food and, and anything that we ingest, chemicals that we ingest, um, at, at, at that interface, it's really at the center of our entire health of our organism, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. 
and I've I haven't gotten to this point because I'm a gastroenterologist. I've gotten to this point because I've looked at all the data, and you you come out to say, well, there's two basic things. One is diet and chemicals that we ingest, and the other one is the influence of the mind, um, which you know goes into, into stress and negative emotions and. And those are the two things I think that we currently can can um, take advantage of, but it's actually not that hard because we have therapies for both a healthy diet and and we know what's a healthy you know even mindfulness based stress reduction and hypnosis and many things. So yeah, the gut is more complicated. The gut health is more complicated than gut diseases. The therapies are actually easier, you know, and. Maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, we'll come up with these genetically engineered microbes and very sophisticated interventions that would improve gut health. But quite honestly, if I had to bet my money on it, I don't think something better than a healthy diet and a healthy mindset will come out of this in the future. Yeah, well... And it, it's very interesting. Uh, so my my father was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's just a, a couple of weeks ago. And so I have been diving further into, you know, looking at, at that um, so that I can make adjustments my, myself, right? Because I'm, I just turned 43. And so a lot of what I was discovering as I was, you know, diving deeper into trying to understand Alzheimer's and all of that is, is also looking at what can I do now uh, to help mitigate um, myself from developing Alzheimer's. Um, and it was astounding to see how much it all comes back to diet. And a lot of it, um, what I was reading, a lot of the, the newer research and, and things that are coming out, it's all connected, like you said, to the gut. Um, and so I found that fascinating and kind of want to talk to about like diving into the diet because I think everybody knows or almost everybody should know that obviously consuming too much sugar, right, we, is, is not ideal for us. Um, and we know that consuming a lot of processed foods um, is not ideal, yet that is a lot of what is in a lot of of diets, right? And a, lot, and a lot of foods that people are eating, even though we, like we know that it's not something that we should be probably consuming. But honestly, I don't think, and I'm speaking even for myself here, I don't think we realize the implications and truly how damaging some of those things can be. But where I did get excited when I was reading through your book is how that the, the cells in our microbiome really do respond and quite rapidly to diet changes. So even, you know, at myself at 40 at 43 or someone who's maybe been eating things that are problematic to gut microbiome that if you make the changes that you in the diet that you will see. I guess kind of that thing like it's not too late, right? Like you can start today and you can dramatically start to see things um, changing. And one of the things that at least for when I was looking at the Alzheimer's and with the gut microbiome that I want to talk to you about is um, is wheat and and gluten free um, versus not and and how that affects the gut microbiome or, or do you see that very much in your practice I should say that actual you know consuming wheat um, and even like you know doing organic wheat versus not how do you see that 
kind of playing into the folks and, and in your research that you've been doing? Well, I mean, staying with the with the disease, you know, with Alzheimer's disease, <clears throat> and you mentioned this, you know, the question is, is it too late to make changes? You know, there's definitely um, points in, a, in, in the longitudinal, I mean, these are chronic diseases, you know, they go on. There's, there's probably the first abnormalities in somebody with Alzheimer's disease long before they have any any cognitive symptoms. And we know this because, you know, a lot of these comorbid conditions like metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes and hypertension, they've all shown to be risk factors for, for Alzheimer's disease. And they're also diet-related. So it could go back. You know, now we have the, the latest data from from the prevalence of some of these uh, these metabolic diseases. I mean, they go back into childhood now. You know, they've... Um, so my feeling is, yes, if you did an intervention in childhood, healthy nutrition, education, exercise, um, that would almost certainly make a difference. If you do something when somebody has the first onset of mild cognitive decline, it's likely that it would delay the onset of full-blown Alzheimer's disease. I'm not sure if it would prevent it completely. Once you develop Alzheimer's disease, I do not believe that a healthy diet would necessarily um, be of significant help. I mean, there's something about the ketogenic diet in patients with advanced Alzheimer's disease. You know, that's a different... Um, I would not recommend a ketogenic diet for people in general, but this is a subset of, of, of patients that would benefit from such a diet. But <clears throat> from the earliest stages, children, adolescents, well, I personally think it's the most important to make a difference because it's the same with Parkinson's disease. It takes decades to develop and it doesn't come out of the blue. You know, if you could monitor the earliest changes, which now we can in some cases. So there's good evidence in Parkinson's disease that, you know, 12 to 15 years before any neurological symptoms appear, um, there's detectable changes in the gut, in the nervous system of, of the gut. And that may even go further, maybe even 30 years before. <clears throat> so, and we have not gotten our research in with the microbiome has not reached a point where we can, with certainty, say, if I test your microbiome when you're 18, um, and probably take some other factors into account, like genetics and the environment you live in, can we predict with what likelihood this individual will develop Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease? I think we'll get to that point. I, I think it's... Uh, you know, 10, 15 years from now, I mean, there's going to be major breakthroughs in this in this technology. The way we test the microbes today in most commercial available tests is pretty simplistic. You know, like you, you look at the prevalence of certain of certain microbial um, families, and uh, we cannot we, we don't have the resolution to go down to the strains of of microbes. So each species, for example, of E. coli has multiple strains, <clears throat> and some of these strains do very different things than others. So we're just not there yet. You know, it's um, when you hear people sell these tests and claim that they can make, predict, you know, um, what's going to happen to you in, in 20, 30 years, 
and that you have to go on this diet. I just, I just don't think, I mean, maybe there's a few exceptions, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to advertise for any of these companies, but there's a few exceptions where I trust they go in the right direction, but a lot of them do not. And um, yeah, you mentioned wheat also. Um, I mean, this whole, you know, non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity, it's kind of a controversial topic because um, yeah. so for, <clears throat> if, if you look at the heart data, there, there's very few so-called, what we call biomarkers that can actually show, you know, alterations in the gut based on on gluten ingestion if you, if you don't have celiac disease. And, you know, people have written best-selling books and there's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and which is heavily defended by its, you know, the people that are in charge of it. <clears throat> but there's some very interesting things. So, you know, in, in, in my practice, I've had really well remember I had a student uh, who did a, who, who had this gluten sensitivity. So she had, uh, you know, she got all, all, all kinds of symptoms, gut symptoms, mental symptoms. And so she had, she had switched to a gluten-free diet, <clears throat> which partially helped her with her symptoms. But then she did an, an exchange here in uh, Florence, Italy, and started eating pizza and, um, you know, pasta every day. And had absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. So these are also, you know, wheat products, but made from different strains of wheat, you know. Um, and so it's there's definitely a possibility that what has happened in the US with this with this breeding of more and more productive wheat strains, you know, something has changed in the composition that is now toxic to the gut of a lot of people. That's one possibility. There's also a possibility that it's not the gluten in these products, but it's it's the other ultra-processed ingredients that people add, you know, to bread, for example. I mean, the bread, if you buy bread in the market here and compare this to the bread that you buy three times a day in France in a bakery, you know, it's completely different. I mean, they make this bread three times a day because it doesn't stay fresh. Here, it stays fresh for for weeks, you know. So yeah. bread is not bread and it, gluten may not be the only thing that's that's really the, the health damaging part of it. But I wouldn't rule it out. I, I think that there's so many differences. I think in Italy, there's still, I think a hundred different strains of of, of wheat and, and, and grains. Whereas here, it's, it's all been reduced to a few that commercially are the most successful, you know. I mean, this has been something in our diet anyway, that we have, um, for commercial reasons, reduced the, the variety of strains in all our food sources. Potatoes, you know, there used to be hundreds. Now it's one or two, the one that makes the best French fries. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, based, it's based on that. Um, and so the food that we eat, they may have the same name as, for example, in Europe or in South America. But they're not the same, you know. The the, the composition and the, the the micronutrients and the nutrients in them, the polyphenols, are not the same. Yeah, I, it's astounding. I we do a lot of um, heirloom 
seed and heirloom crops, like looking at like using einkorn for the wheat examples, you know, spelt, um, einkorn, some of those more ancient grains that that are still wheat and have gluten in them. But as you said, different chromosomes of wheat, like, it's very different. Um, and I've noticed for myself, if I do a true sourdough where I, the dough is being cultured and fermented, you know, from eight to 24 hours and then bake it, that I don't have uh, reactions to like I do if I'm just doing a quick, you know, with just regular yeast. And so there, there's so many nuances there to the, the way it's grown in Italy, you know, their growing practices um, to the actual wheat itself. That would be an entire podcast episode on its on on its own, which could be really fun. One of the things is, and I realize that every every person, you know, is going to be slightly different because we all have different microbiome though it can be kind of regional to a degree so if somebody is is like i know that um or suspectful that their gut health is not what it should be and they're looking for ways to improve what would be some of your top recommendations on on putting them on that path so what I've been doing traditionally, you know, I, I, I take a detailed history of what they eat, what, what their diet is. And um, questionnaires are not very reliable. Like in most of our studies, we use these food frequency questionnaires. And, you know, when people have compared what people actually eat and what they enter in these food, there's no, there's no correlation at all, you know. Um, so you really have to talk to them or have your dietitian talk to them and and analyze what they eat. So what we find in our research studies, and, and, and those are obviously select a group of, of, of people, um, that most of them are on the standard American diet. You know, it, and this is in LA, so I'm sure if you go in the middle of the country, it's, it's probably 100%. There's these few people that are, again, on, in, the, in the coastal, in the bi-coastal areas that, uh, are more health conscious, you know, that, that that follow a Mediterranean style of now vegan and vegetarian, which is rapidly growing. Um, so th this is the first part of the history. And then um, also ask them, you know, it's not just what they eat, but where the food comes from. Do they know? Do they go to the farmer market? Do they know the farmers, you know, have they ever visited? Um, I mean, this is not something for the masses, unfortunately, you know, but you can do it on um, like, I mean, the patients I see in the West Side of Los Angeles, I mean, that, um, the next thing is that I really recommend to them to give it a try with a, with a, um, with a traditional Mediterranean diet. And the reason I, I choose this one, first, there's the most evidence now from scientific studies. They all have somehow jumped on that as the healthy diet. So we have evidence um the second one it's tasty it's not you know so the third one it doesn't have the stigma of a vegan you know a lot of people don't say oh, I'm, I'm i'm not you know i'm not that kind of a person I'm not um so it, so it has certain advantages in that makes it easier acceptable for 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 people they don't have to eliminate meat 100 percent and um so this is kind of been somewhat of a, of a problem then the next question for the patient is well what what kind of mediterranean diet you know can you recommend a book and which has actually led me to the point of writing you know my own recipe book recently called the interconnected um, 
plates, interconnected plates. And I've written it together with friends in, from Spain and, and, and Italy. Um, and it's like home cooking from, from these countries. And what you realize, I mean, there's kind of a limited number of, of, of ingredients. It's not, a, it's not the most sophisticated diet. You know, it's, most dishes are simple. Um, most dishes have a lot of carbs in it, um, not, not sugar. I mean, sugar is actually, you know, minimized. Um, red meat is minimized, fish is encouraged, um, but it eliminates a lot of the ultra-processed components in food. And I want to emphasize this word ultra-processed because almost everything that we eat now is processed. You know, yogurt is processed. Any fermented food is a processed food. It's not the raw food. It's really ultra-processed. Chemicals are put in that you don't even know. I've never heard the names, and when you read on the label, you won't even try to figure out what that is, you know. Um, so this is the way I, I, I usually start. In my history, I also get a good history of of any mind-related mental issues. So is this person a stress hyperreactive person? And do they find when they are stressed, they they, they have they feel it in their gut, you know, either in the stomach or in the in the small intestine. Um, Another one is, you know, any any emotional, the most common thing is anxiety that is associated with gut issues, poor gut health. And that's because there's such a close bi-directional interaction between the, the brain and the emotional centers in the, in, in the brain with, the, you know, with the gut. And what, what we've done in our clinic at UCLA, and now I'm just about to start an, an online practice using the same model, that you have a team of people that you work with for, you know, psychologists for the mind-related and a dietitian for the for the diet-related, um, if necessary, a psychiatrist for any, you know, psychiatric diagnosis. But that, that model where you sort of cover all the areas of that person, particularly those influences that we know are associated with, with poor gut health, I personally think right now is probably the most effective model. It's interesting to me on the like the anxiety and the depression. We've talked about Parkinson's. I mean, so much of what plagues, I would say, modern society, or at least Americans, that's that's obviously where, where I live in is from. How many of these, and I even have a lot of personal um, experience with some of these, and you go in and diet is very rarely, if ever, discussed as as a as a solution um and so i think a lot of people don't even realize that some of these symptoms and things that they're experiencing are even connected to what they're eating and how closely you know all of these symptoms um or all of these things are, are interconnected and go together um and so I am extremely grateful that we are beginning to talk about this more. And obviously you're in the medical community and it's starting to be something that that we're recognizing um, and can kind of get the word out uh, to people. And I also think that the the mind connection, so you said like high stress. Um, and I kind of feel like all of us in today's society live under more 
stress, even though we have things easier, like quote unquote, like we're not, uh, you know, running from bears in the woods, at least most of us, you know, anymore, like it's not that type of stressor. Yet a lot of the things that we think of as our conveniences, like even our phones dinging and letting us know of notifications, those are all minor stressors that can add up. So for the, the mind connection, is it something as simple as trying to re reverse negative thought patterns and, and flipping those to positive thought patterns and then even trying to mitigate, like maybe don't have notifications come through on your phone, you know, that type of, of thing, or is there, is there something deeper um, that goes along with that? No, I think, um, you know, so in terms of the, the, the stress that we're exposed to in modern societies, which plays a big role, I think, in all our chronic diseases, not the only role, but um, it's so we have this sophisticated stress response system that has evolved in evolution in every animal, you know, it's kind of similar. It's it's the most effective design that nature has ever come up with is to save species. <clears throat> And that system reacts by your blood pressure going up and your heart rate going up and your cortisol going up, your norepinephrine going up in the blood. But that's not necessarily, and that's the, you know, the, the classical tiger example that when you are chased by a wild animal or a, you know, sadly by, by a predator in our society, that these systems really kick in. And But that's not what our current stress is. You know, the, 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 the stress is just, this chronic low-level stress that always keeps the stress system engaged, never turns it off. The, the traditional or the, the biological stress system is a system designed to turn off maximally and turn it off quickly as soon as the stress is gone. And that's usually not longer than an hour. Uh, the chronic stress system is on all the time, even during sleep, um, and it influences not just so some people don't even feel it. You know, they're, they're chronically stressed, but they don't feel it because it's at a low level, but but your body feels it. So your immune cells are being engaged all the time in a low-grade low, low grade fashion. You know, this low-grade immune activation that's so common now seems to be such an important factor in many diseases, that, that runs all the time. And um, these influences also affect the gut on a, on a regular basis. Um, it affects like the satiety hormones that are being secreted um, and that are becoming less effective. So people eat more. And um, and so how do you deal with that kind of stress? It's, it's also called allostatic load, um, where the, the, the stress system becomes, you know, what we call maladaptive. It, it actually goes against benefits for you. And... Um, I would say in the majority of patients today, or people in the US today, that is probably the case. I mean, that's, you know, compare this, for example, with with war situations in, in the Middle East or in Ukraine, that's different. I mean, these people are really fully engaged with their, you know, traditional stress response, but, but not we here in the US living in peace and, uh, and things that play a big role in this is definitely the social media and this this ability to being connected to the entire world all the time and depending on what you select from this information you know i'm i'm sort of a news junkie so i spent a lot way too much time reading reading the news even before going to sleep 
Um, but other people, like in the social media, you know, are very stressed by competing with all the Instagram, uh, the people on Instagram, how many followers do you have? And, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible competitive race starting at age probably 14 for girls, you know, um, and, and, then you, and then you see the, 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 the product. Those people that compete in this race are actually then very successful commercially, become influencers. And so there's, there's these different parts of the, of the internet, but um, the, the, the shared mechanism is that it keeps your attentional system running all the time. There's no, um, there's, a, there's a mode in the brain called the default mode network. So when, when your attention is not engaged, you know, when, when you meditate or, or when you just um, don't think about anything, there's a special network in the brain that, that, that is active. And then when something comes up that requires your attention, you turn off that or your brain turns off that default mode network. And in our brains, you know, that happens now all the time. I mean, throughout the day, at nighttime, you know, first thing in the morning, you look at your your, your phone. <clears throat> I would say that's a, that's a big thing. The other thing is all these poly crises that are going on in the world. You know, for some people, they, they kind of try to suppress that information and not pay attention to it. Um, for me and a lot of my friends and, and, and acquaintances, it really affects me tremendously when I, when I think about what goes on in the world now and which direction it's heading. It's almost like everybody you talk to who is who pays attention to any kind of news tells you the same thing. We're going definitely rapidly in the wrong direction in the world, not politically, but, you know, globally. I think that must be a major trigger for this low-grade stress response, just knowing the world is going in a direction that is very worrisome, extremely worrisome, you know, and we don't see anything that is really making it better right now with the, with the, with our devices, and our phones, yeah, we can turn it off. We can implement strategies, not, you know, like, like we do, we, we have a rule, no phones on the dinner table. Um, unfortunately, we don't do this when we go to bed. We still hang on our phones and first thing in the morning, you look at it. But if somebody's really serious about this, you could do that, you know. You can't do anything about these other crises, these planetary crises going on from the from the political to to climate, and uh, you know, there's just, just so many happening at the same time, which in some ways, again, our biologically developed stress responsive systems were not developed to deal with this. You know, it's just not the complete mismatch of the reality that we're facing now and and what our brains are equipped with. Yeah, you know. I think, truthfully, that's why I see a lot of people um, looking more towards homesteading or growing a vegetable garden or growing something like they're they're I think intuitively that there's part of us that knows that this isn't good for us. I mean, and then there's the other part that that's addicted or, or use it, you know, whatnot, of course. But I think that that's why I see a lot more people, I've been in the online space of homesteading and, and growing your own food and, and doing that type of thing since uh, 2011. 
and definitely saw a a growing trend with more and more people looking at it aspects because not everybody is going to you know move out and buy huge acreage and you know go all in like that but a lot of people are looking at like okay well what aspects can i do where i'm at if it isn't an apartment or suburb or you know wherever their location is and i think that that's part of it like you're saying there's a part of us that knows deep down that some of these aspects are not good and that we do need to get back to some of those other ways of life um, and in whatever aspect we can with where we are right now. And, and, and yeah, and putting, I mean, and even me, like I, I live very rurally. And so, you know, but make like, you know, I'll go out to the garden and I'll take the phone to listen to a podcast. Now it could be a really great podcast. It's giving me fabulous information, but that's not giving my brain a chance to just be quiet. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm even if it's good stuff, it's still being consumed. So I really like putting in those pauses and those margins where you're truly not doing anything um, is really hard, even for me living on a farm. Like there's always, you know, something that needs to be done with with the animals or, or the plants or, or whatever. But but creating that space um, to give yourself just some some time away and, and to not have to think or not have to do um, to just kind of be I, I think is is what I got from what you said is is really an important thing that's so simple but it's something that's hard to do because simple doesn't always equate to easy honestly yeah and this is this is a problem so many solutions are simple <clears throat> um but they're not easy because we're, we're running against such a a massive information campaign from commercial interests that want us to do something different you know they, they um yeah like all the algorithms on, on on social media drive you to spend more time and get addicted same thing with the food you know we're bombarded with these with these advertisements constantly um and we're not watching tv anymore because i, I just couldn't deal with with this bombardment on, on the um but yeah, we we have tremendous headwinds. You know, yeah, the solutions are simple. The same, let's say, for our major health problems, um, healthy nutrition and uh, a healthy mind are the the key ingredients. Everybody can do it, but then it's so hard to do it. You know, and uh, um, but I would say, you know, what what you say with this with, with the gardening. So I mean, you know, my wife does this a lot. Uh, where we live, so we live outside of LA in one of the canyons, so which is almost rural. Um, and we we couldn't imagine living anywhere else because I mean the benefit that we get from either walking in this environment or um, you know my wife loves to be in the garden and then we eat these these vegetables that she grows outside. Uh, it's it's just simple joy, you know. It's just uh, something that you can't replace with anything else. And thinking what this food comes from and what you put into that soil, um, and you know what this does to the the microbes in in the soil. I mean, it, it took me a long time to sort of learn about these things. Quite honestly, in my career, even though when I grew up and <clears throat> so I had I had relatives. This was in Germany, in in, in southern Germany. I had I had relatives. They were farmers, and I spent the summer vacations on their farm and loved this this farming life and all this. You know, um, it was hard work getting up early in the morning, um, and 
and, and it was very healthy food and nobody was obese and nobody had any illnesses. People lived into their 90s. Um, even though, you know, I would eat a lot of sweets, um, ruin my teeth, but otherwise it didn't do anything to my health because all the other things were there um, that that compensated for this, you know, being outdoors the whole day, having this connection to the soil. So now fast forward, you know, several decades, I totally forgotten about this part of my life, but I dug out the pictures and, um, and then, you know, came in contact with, with people in, in, in the, in, in the US with, I published very interesting books about the soil microbes and the, the, the healthy soil. And, it sort of dawned on me, you know, what an important, and then the similarity that you mentioned earlier between the soil and the plants, the roots and our gut and, you know, the rest of the body being linked to that, to that soil inside of us is, is absolutely fascinating, you know, to me. And so what we have done partially to our own soil or gut system or ecosystem is, you know, inundated with medications, particularly antibiotics, and reduce the diversity and uh, the health of that gut microbial ecosystem. But we're doing exactly the same thing to 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 the soil. You know, where we grow our food, we, the, the the chemical fertilizers essentially suppress or bypass the the microbial production of of health plant health promoting substances. And even though these plants become big and look good, and uh, they're missing some of the key ingredients, you know, the, the micronutrients, and particularly, so I have a particular interest in, in the polyphenols, you know, this class of antioxidants, but they really have a lot more <clears throat> benefits. And the plants, for the plants, this is their main medication, the pharmacy, the, the polyphenols, when they're in a, in a, in a drought or the UV light or uh, pests, they defend themselves with producing these polyphenols. And they get the signals from the microbes in the gut to produce those. So then when we eat these same molecules, they go on, go down to our microbes, our gut microbes break them up into smaller molecules. Then they're being absorbed and they get into our brain, into our body and improve brain health. So that to me is one of the most beautiful examples of you know how we are connected to soil health and how how evolution has used the same principles really. I mean they worked for the plants, so they work for us as well, you know. <clears throat> yeah, this has become one of my favorite uh, subjects that um, and then that leads you to all kinds of behavior changes, obviously uh, when you when I recommend now to for people to have a largely plant-based diet, this this recommendation has to come at the same time with make sure where this food comes from, how is it grown, who who grows it, is it, um, you know, from from organic farmers and ideally sustainably or green uh, or, or, or organic farmers. So it opens opens up a whole. So for me as a gastroenterologist, all of a sudden I, I'm interested in in plant health and so soil health and pl planetary health. It's 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 been an interesting journey, and, and it's not over yet. You know, it's you, you continue to to recognize things that you, most people have never thought about. I, I think.
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's, it's interesting because uh, I come from a long line of um, people who live close to the land. So my, my dad was born during the great depression and they raised pretty much all of their food with the exception of buying a little bit of flour um, and salt from the store. They, my uh, grandfather kept bees. So that was their primary sweetener and, and all of that. And so having that connection to the land is something that is a heritage for me and that I grew up with. But on the other side, I, you know, not knowing all of these intricacies, right? Just knowing that, oh, you know, it this works when you do this in the garden or this works with the livestock, you know, uh, but getting to see the science that we have now on how that is all interconnected um, is just really it's really incredible. And I think the more that we know about it, the more it makes us appreciate it um, and and then be even more interested in it um, and intrigued, which is like this actual beautiful cycle because it creates greater awareness for other people as well because we get excited about that and we pass that on. And so I see it as, as, a, as a, very good, a very good thing. We just need more and more people to be aware of it because we do have less people in society now especially in america um you know not as many people grow a garden like a lot of people remember maybe their grandparents growing a garden um but not them specifically and so i think it's really important the the more that we talk about this and kind of bring this awareness back um so that we have more people who are experiencing it like you said you know you and your wife like it's really this this great thing and we kind of as a society have gotten away from it overall um, and to kind of see that swing, hopefully um, to continue to come and, and to come back the other way. So uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, where is the best place for folks to connect with you? I think you have your own podcast um, as well. So kind of give people the best place for them to find out more about your work and to go further in learning with you. Yeah, so a couple of things. So, the, I mean, the best place or the easiest place is to go to my website because all the products and all the, you know, all the podcasts and all the, the posts from our newsletter are all there. You can find them. You can sign up for our newsletter, which I highly recommend. comes out weekly. <clears throat> you will also see, you know, a couple of recent productions. So I mentioned this earlier, the, the Interconnected Plates uh, recipe book, which is basically a, uh, you know, Mediterranean. So we call it Mediterranean diet inspired book. It's not not purely Mediterranean, but um, I also did a masterclass with the masterclass.com, which is has just come out last week. It's a beautiful piece with animations. People would have to sign up for, for the whole masterclass program, which is a great thing. But um, and then we did one for PBS, a documentary which came out um, end of last year. And um, for that also, like you have to sign up, you know, um, for the for the PBS program. But but these this is these are information sort of supplementary of what we talked about. You can do you can read as much as you want um, in these in, in, in these different medias. Um, and um, yeah, and then there's a couple of books, you know, I have the First on the mind gut connection. Still, I'm still surprised today how how long burning this book has been because um, it's now I think six at least six years old and still a bestseller in gastroenterology. And followed this up with uh, 
the mind got immune connection going more into the you know the interaction with the immune system uh, so there's yeah there's quite a few materials you find it all on the website mrmaya.com and um i would encourage people who are interested in this some things are free some things you have to sign up for yeah, well, we'll make sure and link to that in the blog post that accompanies this episode and the show notes. And I just started reading um, the the immune one that you're the second one that you were talking about last night, and um, just finding it very fascinating. I thought that I knew a decent amount um, about gut health, but I found some really interesting uh, things in there. I, in particular of note that I thought was very interesting was um, the mucus lining, and how when you're not eating enough fiber um, that that can start to actually be consumed, which can then contribute to more leaky gut. Um, I just thought that that was just, that was fascinating. But this is actually a very interesting point. You know, it confused me for a long time. <clears throat> There's one microbe um, that loves to eat, feed off the mucus. So it's, it's called Acamantia mucinophilia, that's the name. And so, if 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 you if you fast or if you don't eat enough uh, fiber, you know vegetables and fruits, that organism, which requires fiber, um, will then go after the mucus lining. These these um, the really sugar molecules that line the gut, but it doesn't just eat it. It also at the same time stimulates the production of new mucus, in in other parts of the gut. So what what happens that you get a, a better turnover of the mucus it actually becomes healthier so fasting uh, you know um, is a healthy thing um, so it's not just um, so it's it's the the production of the mucus layer plus the consumption so if this is in balance it's healthy if, if it's out of balance if, if more is um, broken down um, then it's it's bad for you for, for the lining of the gut and for the you know for the leakiness yeah yeah i thought I, I thought that was very interesting um because i have i've done keto in the past i've done intermittent fasting um and just had no i just I knew what those effects had more on like insulin resistance and blood sugar and those types of things. But then, you know, reading that and on mucus lining and some of the, um, some of the things that I've been dealing with recently health wise, I'm like, Oh, wow, that is very interesting. And I was looking at my own diet. I'm like, yeah, I probably need to up my fiber. <laughs> So I I found I, that was just in the in the first few chapters and I haven't gotten all the way through it yet because I just started it last night but yeah I, I will be making some some changes to the diet after going through that so um, thank you it, I really was enjoying it with all the different uh, studies um, and stuff that were in there um, on seasonal eating and some of the the different tribes were went and looked at their gut microbiome I just found all of that very, very fascinating. So for anybody who is listening, um, I highly recommend the book. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a real pleasure talking to you today. It's, uh, I, I mean, I always enjoy with, with some hosts more than with others, but this was particularly stimulating with your questions. And, and I like you, you know, the background that you're coming from, from a long line of, you know, people who actually worked on the soil. And uh, I mean, that's, 
haven't really done this that often, quite honestly, to have the opportunity. So, I mean, that, that's great that you're... I would also say one, one hope that I have is, I think it came up in our conversation, the education really has to start in in the, in in the school, you know, in in elementary school. Because if if that happened, then the parents would learn from the children, and you would sort of really start a groundswell um, that that is necessary to change it. As long as children are used to eat junk food and love hamburgers, and um, it's it's not going to change. You know, but once these these food preferences are programmed early in life, very hard to, to get away from them. Food preferences like for, for red meat or for sugar or for, um, and you can see this, I mean, in, in the US, the food preferences for sweetness are very, very different from the rest of the world. You know, it's um, red meat. I mean, there's other countries that have the same, but it's a lot of this happens the first few years of life what the parents feed their children and and how the brain perceives what's good for me. Yeah. I, and I, I, I would also say too, that, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I, my kids are in the, the were raised. My son has graduated from high school. My daughter's still in, in the public school system. And there's a lot that you would like to see in the public school system. And it's not. And as parents, like that is that, that is our role. I mean, I think, honestly, that we rely too much on sometimes public systems and, and public education where that is our role as parents, right? Or should be, should yeah. be our role as parents that we're educating our kids along with ourselves. Um, and, and we're doing that part. We're not relying on the school to do it, that we're taking up that, that flag, if you will, and planting it and saying, you know, this is, you know, this is what is, is, is good and, and healthy and, you know, setting, setting that foundation at home. And then, and because that's what we can control and, you know, right now in immediate time, we can't control necessarily what the public school systems teach and, and programs. So it's take a lot longer. I mean, there's things that we could do actions to help influence them, of course, but what we can't control is what we're doing at home with our own children, our grandchildren and our own lives. And so I would say like, that is where we need to educate and do our primary work first. No, absolutely. No, I would no, I would agree with this. Yeah, for me, it was less the school system, but the age, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the age is the key. I mean, this has to start early because once it's just like you program a computer, once the program is in, it will stay like that, you know. It's very difficult later unless you, unless you develop a disease, a serious illness, or someone in the family that those are usually events that that chain make people reconsider you know yeah. their, that's what know. it was for me it, yeah i had my i had a, an, an, my own health crisis in my late 20s and that was where i really uh, you know flipped and and started to take it serious and it like a whole 180 so yeah i agree if we could give our children this foundation um instead of having them come to a health crisis later in order to make those changes yeah. like man what a gift yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Mayer. Really enjoyed um, our time together. And thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, that it gave you some great food for thought. 
And speaking of the food aspect, today's episode is sponsored by Azure Standard. Now, one of the things that we mentioned in this episode was talking about ancient grains and how those differ in a lot of different ways than our modern wheat and our modern grains. And Azure Standard carries einkorn grain. So they have the organic einkorn grain. So as a wheat berry, if you want to grind your own flowers or soak that and cook that in the whole grain form, they have einkorn flour. And they also have the um, some different einkorn all-purpose organic flours and even einkorn um, from the Jovial line, different crackers, pastas, um, etc. So they have a a whole line of products, things that are made from that ancient grain einkorn, which a lot of people find that they have very good success as far as being able to digest and to tolerate without sensitivities that they may have to other more modern strains. So you can check that out at azurestandard.com. And if you're a first time customer, you can use the code Melissa10 and get 10% off your first order of $50 or more. Uh, They have a lot of other great products, but that is one of my favorites. And I have been getting the um, Jovial pasta, the einkorn pasta, and we have been enjoying that as well. I wanted to share my verse of the week with you. I feel like it's been a hot minute since I've been, now I'm back to podcasting um, regularly since I've got to share a verse of the week with you guys. So this was from a study that I was, um, portion I was reading last night, and it is from Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. And this is the Amplified Translation. Do not remember the former things or ponder the things of the past. Listen carefully, I am about to do a new thing. Now it will spring forth, will you not be aware of it? I will even put a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And that just felt like the a beautiful timing and message. If you listen to last week's episode where I gave a health update and about a warning of things that I've been going through and some changes to make if you're experiencing any of those. And knowing that a new thing is about to come, because when you've been stuck in a place where you felt like you've been, you know, maybe been really sick, which is where I was at, or maybe it's a hard emotional time or whatever it is, when you've been stuck in a place that doesn't feel the greatest for whatever reason that may be, sometimes you can be like, is this ever going to end? Like, I feel like I've been here forever. I feel like this is never going to end. And you kind of feel defeated and you don't feel very hopeful. And this verse just came at the perfect time to not ponder on the things of the past, but to have the faith that God is about to do a new thing and it will happen even in the wilderness places, even in the desert places. And we need to be aware of it and looking for it and trusting that he is going to do what he says. So this has been a verse that I've been pondering on this week, and I just thought would be hopeful to share with you guys. So thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. And next week, we will be back with a brand new episode. And it is another one that I'm really excited to share with you guys. We're going to be diving deeper into those things and choices that you can make for yourself and your family that will have greater influence, but basically starts starts with ourself and starts at home, right? So I'm really 
very excited to share with you for next week's episode. So without further ado, I hope you have a fabulous week. Blessings and mason jars for now. <laughs>